0: Well, this morning we are finishing off our sermon series where we've been looking at various aspects of God's character since the beginning of September and uh, trying to think how those different facets of who God is should shape and influence our worship. Not just our worship when we come together on a Sunday or in a connect group or in a student huddle, uh, but how we live our lives of worship Monday through to Saturday. Um, Because who God is should change the way in which we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world, the way we think about God himself, and particularly the way we think about people who don't know him. And this morning we want to finish our sermon series looking at this particular aspect of a description of Jesus who is described in the New Testament as our great high priest. Jesus is described as our great high priest. And what we're going to look at this morning is why that's important, why it matters, And what the implications are for you and for me, for the church and for the world. Now, I don't know what image um, comes to your mind when you think of the word priest. It's not a word that has particularly good connotations or positive connotations. Um, Child abuse scandals um, perhaps come to mind. Um, Maybe you think of Rich or me or Libby or James Uh, when you think of the word priest. That is a a photograph of us, uh, the clergy team at P's and G's. Uh, Now, if you go back one, um, there's me at the front, uh, looking a bit rough. Uh, Rich at the back. uh, James looking like James, and Libby before she puts her makeup on. Um, But it may be that that that's what you you think of when you think of the word priest. Uh, It is Father Ted uh, that comes to mind. Um, Kathy every now and again kicks me when I'm sitting in the corner of the lounge shouting, drink! Um, Just to sort of wake me up. Um, But is that the word or the image perhaps that comes to mind? Maybe it is one of the four of us. Maybe it is uh, Rich or Libby or James or myself. Um, We don't often refer to ourselves as priests, Um, but we do act as priests um, we have a priestly function. We belong to a denomination that believes in uh, bishops, priests, and deacons, and each of us are ordained priests. And occasionally we will do priestly things. We will celebrate communion. We'll baptize people. We will, um, when we're talking pastorally one-to-one, we will speak words of absolution when we're with people, assuring people of their sins having been forgiven. But we don't tend to refer to ourselves as priests very often, and and that picture uh, may be the reason why. Um, Maybe it's Adam Smallbone from the television series Rev. Um, That's perhaps the most realistic depiction of what it's like to work in the church as an ordained minister, sadly. Um, Ordained clergy Across the UK, uh, when that series came out and the two series they've been on, just go every episode we go, yep, that's what our life is like. Um, Josh, our eldest, is actually working in the next door parish uh, to where that particular series is filmed uh, and went into the church uh, two or three weeks ago. Or perhaps it's Dawn French in the Vicar of Dibley. Uh, That's what comes to mind when you think of the word priest. Um, perhaps the most unrealistic and romanticised view uh, of what it is to be a clergy person, Um, apart from that episode where she has to eat three Christmas dinners on one day. Remember that when she's stuffing down the last Brussels sprout uh, to try and beat the chairman of the PCC? And something very similar happened to me in this church. I won't say when, I won't say where and I won't say who with, but I had to eat several meals on the same day and each person that I was having the meal with was completely unaware of the fact that i had had that exact same meal and of the exact same size with different people during the same day. So what comes to mind when you see the term Priest. Jesus is described in that passage that read for us by Katrina a few moments ago as our great high priest. In fact, he was described as a merciful and faithful high priest. If you have got a Bible, if you haven't got one, there are some at the front of the uh, balconies and some on the ground floor, or if you've got a smartphone, uh, flip it open to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, but more predominantly going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 5, where Jesus is described again and again as our great high priest, and why it matters, and why it matters for us. Where does the term priest come from? Well, priests were introduced in what we know of as the Old Testament to navigate the territory between God and humanity. Um, God wanted to be in a relationship with people, um, but if you strayed into God's presence, it was dangerous. People died in God's presence when they accidentally strayed into his arena. And so, priests were um, introduced to navigate this sort of, I'm going to say twilight zone, but the sort of territory uh, between God and humanity. And they were to be the go-between, literally between God and humanity. They represented uh, the people to God and God to the people. That's what priests were designed to do. And they were a special group of people who said, Special words, they wore special clothes, and on a special day in the year, once a year, one of their number was picked, chosen, elected to go into the Holy of Holies and to make a sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people once a year. Aaron and his family uh, were chosen to be the priests in the Old Testament. They were uh, all men, um, but they were appointed and chosen to act as mediators and representatives between God and humanity, between Israel and God himself. They interceded in prayer, they offered sacrifices for sins, and they mediated between Israel and God. But if you flip over in the book of Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 5, you'll see there that Jesus is described not just as a great high priest, but as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, who was he? Who was Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek appears in Genesis chapter 14. And in that chapter, he's described as blessing Abram. He comes with bread and wine. Interesting symbolism. Bread and wine, and he blesses Abram. He's described as the king of Salem and the king of righteousness. So the king of Salem, the king of Shalom, the king of peace, and the king of righteousness. And he comes to Abram with bread and wine. Now, in those symbols and in those terms, bells should start to ring. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, bread and wine. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He comes as the prince of peace. He comes as the king of righteousness. He comes, and we remember his coming, with bread and wine. But in what way is Jesus a priest? Well, it is very quickly in three ways that we're going to look at this morning. As a victorious priest, as a compassionate priest, and then as an obedient priest. Firstly, a victorious priest. Now, this isn't a word that you normally associate with the word priest. Okay, you won't look at rich or me or Libby or James and think ah, there is a victorious priest. Uh, you might look at Rich when Birmingham City have won and say there is a victorious priest, uh, you might on less occasion now look at me when United win and say there's a victorious priest. But Jesus here is pictured and described in chapter 4 and verse 14 as a victorious priest who through The incarnation, that's his becoming a baby, becoming a human being, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has now ascended into heaven. Jesus has triumphed over sin, evil, and death. So he is the victorious high priest. And because he is the victorious high priest, there is now, on one level, no need for any other priests. Occasionally, people will refer to that area and the, 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 the thing that's at the back of the church. They will say, oh, it's the high altar. We used to go up to the high altar for communion. That's not a high altar. That's not a high altar. That's a table. You see, the difference is that altars are where sacrifices happen. Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice. Because Jesus has lived, died, and was raised again and is now ascended into heaven, there is no more need for any more sacrifices. In the Book of Common Prayer uh, liturgy, the words that we used to use at our nine o'clock service, and in the English um, communion service, he uses this phrase, which comes from Hebrews again and again, uses this phrase, once for all made once for all upon the cross, once for all. Jesus died once for all. Because Jesus died once for all, there is now no need for any more sacrifices. When we have bread and wine on a table, we're remembering, we're calling to to memory, we're reenacting, we're reminding ourselves what happened when Jesus became human and died, on the cross. We're remembering his sacrifice, but we're not reenacting it. We're not doing it all over again. That is not a high altar. It's a table. And the, the difference is important because Jesus is the great high priest. He's the victorious high priest. He's the one who's paid it all. He's the one who has achieved it all. He is the one who surpasses all his priestly predecessors. And elsewhere in Hebrews, there's a a term that's used about Jesus to say that he made perfect the sacrifice for sin. And there's a play on words there that the writer of the Hebrews is using because made perfect is is the term that they would also use for when somebody was ordained. And when you... The same word in Hebrew as ordained and made perfect is also used and translated... By the term, your hands were filled. So it's this, this image of when you're ordained, um, your hands are filled. We sometimes say, let's you know, stand and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And It's sometimes helpful just to hold your hands out as a, as a sign that you're open to God and you're coming empty-handed for him to fill you. Well, it's interesting here that Hebrews refers to Jesus, his hands being filled as he's ordained, as he's made perfect by his death on the cross, and he makes the perfect sacrifice. What were Jesus' hands filled with? Nails. Those are the marks of Jesus' ordination. He's ordained. He is the great high priest because his hands are filled. He is ordained. He perfects the sacrifice because his hands are filled with nails. Jesus dies in our place. He pays the penalty for our sin. He is the sacrifice for our sin. He makes atonement for our sin. And that's why he is the great high priest, because he is the The greatest high priest. He surpasses all his priestly predecessors. But he's also a human priest. He's a human priest. He's become one of us. In that that reading from Hebrews 2, the writer says he became one of us. So he's like you and me. He was flesh and blood. He's felt what we feel. He's walked where we walk. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Chapter 4 and verse 15. So he's the great high priest, he's the greatest high priest, but he's a human high priest. There is a man in heaven. There is a human being at the right hand of God. Unthinkable to Jewish minds. Blasphemy to a, a Muslim mind. But the unique feature of the Christian faith, God became a human being, and now there is a human being at the right hand of God. Somebody who is like us, who has had flesh and blood, who now has a resurrection body, but who is and was flesh and blood, just like you and just like me. And yet, he's a unique priest. So he's not just the greatest high priest, he's a human high priest, and he's a unique high priest because he's not just human, he's also divine. At the same time, he's God and humanity. Not like, somebody put it, divinity um, in, inside a human being, like something inside an envelope, like a letter inside an envelope. And not God and humanity together within the same sort of skeleton or flesh, like two people inside a pantomime horse, but he's both fully God and fully human at the same time. So he's the greatest high priest, he's a unique high priest, he's a human high priest because he's also fully God and fully human at the same time. So he is the greatest high priest. Secondly, he's a compassionate priest, Chapter 4, verse 15 through to chapter 5 and verse 3. Here we have God's criteria for selecting priests. Rich and Libby and James and I are involved in advising people who think that God might be calling them to be priests. Rich does a lot of his time in his ministry because he's what's called a DDO, a Diocesan Director of Ordinance. And Rich uses criteria to help people who think that God might be calling them to ordain ministry in the Episcopal or Anglican church. And he uses set criteria. Well, in chapter 4, verse 15, through to chapter 5 and verse 3, we have the criteria that God uses. Every priest, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. And look at this criteria in verse 2 of chapter 5. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. So one of the key criteria that God looks for are people who are gentle. People who are conscious of their own weakness. People who are not self-selecting, but who are chosen by others. That's really important. People who come to see Rich, or or come to see me, or Libby, or James, who think that God is calling them, it's not enough for them to say, I think that God is calling me to be a priest. And it's not as though the church goes, well, well, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. I mean, Frankly, you know, we wondered how we've got this far without you. If I'm honest, when I was 23, 24, that was my attitude. God had called me when I was 18 to ordain ministry. And I knew very clearly that God had called me to ordain ministry. And it really, in my eyes, it was a a miracle that the church had got this far for this long without me. And really, it was a question of whether God could keep it on the road long enough until I got ordained. And so I presented myself to first the Baptist church and then the Anglican church. And, 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 you know, how could they turn me down? They did, twice. Because I was coming with that attitude. Because I believed firmly and clearly, and it, it was right, that God had called me. But that's not enough, the rise to the Hebrew says. You are chosen by God and you are selected by people. So your calling needs to be recognised by God and it needs to be affirmed by other people. It's not enough for you to think that God has called you. That's vital, that's really important because without it you wouldn't get up some days if you do end up in ordained ministry. But if you think that you should be called and it's a question of whether the church can keep going until you get there, that probably means that you're not ready. When he was appointed Pope, uh, the current Pope was asked for his criteria on who should be selected cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, well, it's very simple, really. The people who think that they should be cardinals are the very people who shouldn't be. And the ones who think they shouldn't be, well, they're the ones who should be. And he actually, I think, this may be apocryphal, but he sent a memo. It was certainly in an interview with a journalist. He said, if you have got measured for your red or purple cassock, if you have got measured for your red or purple shoes, throw that piece of paper out because you won't be needing them. Because if you think that you're qualified or fit or deserving to be a cardinal, you have automatically disqualified yourself. I love the story about the present Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who tells the story about going to um, the Bishop of Kensington as he was then and seeking ordination. And he was told that um, given who he was and given his character and given his theology, um, there was no room for people like him in the Church of England. And 20, 25 years later, he ended up as the Archbishop of Canterbury. You see, if you think that you should be called. If you think that you should be a priest, if you think you should be a cardinal, if you think you should be a bishop, that's probably quite revealing that you shouldn't be. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a long train journey to Oban uh, with a clergy colleague from this diocese, and we were talking about the way in which clergy jockey for position and status within the church. And he said something very wise. He said, I think most positions that you're appointed to in the church should actually come as a surprise to you. If you think you're entitled to it, you're probably not qualified to do it. But if someone suggests or sees something, calls something out within you, and you go, oh, really? That probably means that maybe they've spotted something that you haven't and that God has called within you. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is an obedient priest. Chapter 5 and verses 4 to 8 During the days of his life on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus is described as praying with fervent tears, who is heard because of his reverent submission. And here we see this this paradox, this mystery at the heart of who Jesus is divinity and humanity, royalty and humility, or as Graham Kendrick wrote in that hymn, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity. All at the same time. Events that we'll be thinking over the next few weeks as we go through Advent and the run-up to Christmas. These verses in Hebrews are the equivalent of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes in that early hymn or creed about how Jesus emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even death, On a cross. The technical term is kenosis in in the Greek and it means that Jesus empties himself of his power and his glory and his majesty. He doesn't empty himself of his divinity but he empties himself of his power and his glory and his majesty and his splendor and he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross, taking on the very nature of of a servant, a slave. And in Philippians chapter 2, you have this sort of descent into the cross. And therefore God exalted him and raised him to the highest place, the name that is above every name. So we have a compassionate, human, divine, unique, submissive and obedient priest who is God's son. And we're told he prays for us. A couple of weeks ago we were reminding ourselves that the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words. Well, here we have a reminder that Jesus prays for us. It's not just the Holy Spirit who's praying for us, but Jesus, the Son of God, is praying to the Father. Now, as John Wimber said, that's really good news and really bad news. The good news is that Jesus is praying for us. The bad news is, we're going to need it. The good news is that Jesus is praying for us. That can be a really encouraging thing. It's a really encouraging thing when you know people are praying for you. Maybe you're going through a hard time. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. And you come forward for prayer ministry. Okay, our prayer ministry are good. We've been trained. Some of us are even professionals. And that can be encouraging, really encouraging to have somebody or a couple of people stand with you and pray for you and just pray into that thing. That's really encouraging. But how much more encouraging to know that Jesus is praying for you. I mean, never mind Rich Cornfield, Libby Tolbert, Dave Richards, James Green, or Joe Hockley, or, or anybody else who's on the prayer ministry team. Jesus is praying for you. Well, that's really good news. But it's also really bad news because you're going to need it. I'm going to need it. Jesus is praying for us. But why does all that matter? Well, it matters because elsewhere in the New Testament, the church and you and I are described as a royal priesthood. So, this is one of the reasons why we were going through this sermon today, is why we decided not to wear robes at our nine o'clock service anymore. It's one of the reasons why we don't wear robes at these services, at 11 or seven, and we very, very rarely, apart from at funerals, will wear a dog collar. Because you see, priesthood, as far as the New Testament is concerned, is no longer about special people wearing special clothes, spaying special words in a special building. (laughs) That is not a New Testament picture of priesthood. Me wearing a pair of curtains from the 1930s coronation is not a New Testament picture of priesthood. Okay, I was delighted and honored to be made a canon. That was lovely and it was nice and freezing cold. Um, But that is not a New Testament picture of priesthood. If you want a New Testament picture of priesthood, look at the person on your left and look at the person on your right. Look at the person behind you. Okay, you're going to have to turn around for that. And look at the person in front of you. That is a New Testament picture of priesthood. Because according to the New Testament, we are all priests. We are all priests. Now what does that mean? That means that we are supposed to be compassionate and obedient and interceding. It means that we are supposed to be representatives of people to God and God to people. And there is this thing called the priesthood of all believers that was sort of rediscovered in the Reformation. That doesn't mean that we don't need priests anymore. It doesn't mean that we can be our own priests But it means that we were supposed to be priests to and for each other. So that we were supposed to pray for each other, intercede for each other, represent God to each other. That when the world looks at us, they think that's what it looks like for God to be involved in people's lives. If that lot in the church can say that they believe in God, there must be a God. If that lot in church can get on with each other for the most part, there must be a God. This is what it looks like when people, where their allegiance is to the kingdom of God first, and this is what it looks like when they represent God's kingdom here on earth. Because that's what you and I are called to do. We're called to be priests. We're called to be God's representatives to humanity and humanity's representatives to God. So it's not about wearing special clothes, saying special words in a special building on a special day. It is about every single day you being called to be a priest. So when you get up tomorrow morning and you start to get dressed for work or for school or for university or for college or whatever you're going to do tomorrow, you are in a vestry. You're not in a bedroom. You might be in a bedroom or a bathroom. But as you, a Christian, put on your clothes, you're in a vestry because you are putting on your priestly garments. It might be a three-piece suit. It might be a nurse's uniform. It might be a doctor's white coat. It might be as a school teacher. It might be as a mum or a dad or a university student. It might be your school uniform. But you are putting on your priestly garments because God has called you to be a priest. Because we are New Testament priests. That's the picture. Jesus is the great high priest. He surpasses all his predecessors. But because he has paid the price on the cross, because he did it all on the cross, once and for all, you and I are now called into priestly ministry. Because it doesn't need one person on one day of the year to go into a special place and say special words. Because all of us can come into God's presence every single day. Because we are in God's presence every single day. All that happens in the hour, hour and a half that we're in this building is that we consciously remind ourselves that we're in God's presence. But you are as much in God's presence on Wednesday afternoon as you are here in this place on a Sunday morning. The question is whether you believe it or not. It doesn't change the nature and the truth of it, but it's whether you're aware of it on that hospital ward or in that classroom Or in that office. You are as much in the presence of God there as you are here. Because you're a priest. Because you and I are called to be God's representatives here on earth. That when people see us, they should see God. And they should see you as God's representative here on earth.